Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Decent People. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by Doug Pekanics, co-founder of LivePeer, which is a peer-to-peer video streaming service. Doug has a long history in the software world uh, where he's battled giants like Apple and Google. And he's been in Web3 now for about six years, going back to 2016, which basically makes him a dinosaur. Hey, Doug, how you doing? Hey, really good. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me today. It's the first time I've been called a dinosaur in a while. So uh, badge of honor, I guess. I figure your youthful appearance can handle it. So um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, I wanted to just start with a sort of a, a big topic that's going on right now, uh, or, you know, it could be a big topic, but it's, um, you know, it, it's a peer-to-peer issue, which you guys are doing at LivePeer, but it's, it's a little more nefarious. And it's um, the Ontario regulators have singled out some tweets that um, Brian Armstrong of Coinbase and Jesse Powell of Kraken made, where they the police have been notified that they might be... Um, you know, uh, trying to get people to z- subvert local laws about having a cryptocurrency wallet that is, that is your own, that's self-hosted. So um, I, I, that's kind of striking to me uh, in, in, in sort of like in the much broader uh, context gets to why peer-to-peer um, is such an important um, cornerstone of crypto. And, and now, you, so, you know, you've got regulators here who are, are basically alerting the cops to people who are trying to, to advocate for folks to be in control of their own wallet, to have their own keys, to have their own coins. Um, so I don't know if you saw that, but I, w- I wondered if you had any thoughts on it and just like how it kind of maybe dovetails into why you guys, you know, got into live peer in the first place. Yeah, thanks for surfacing that. I mean, it's incredibly concerning, right? It's something we should all, you know, uh, take take a second to think about and, and take a look at what's what's really going on here. It's uh, you have people who are advocating for using tools like cryptography in order to provide for your own privacy and freedom to communicate securely, and in this case, your freedom to control your own wealth and assets and transact um, with other parties. And you have governments that people suspected were were um, democratic and uh, you know trying to preserve these freedoms, actually taking these, these seemingly more authoritarian positions where they're saying, no, it's actually our role to dictate what freedoms you have in terms of your ability to communicate privately and securely or to control your own assets and, and transact privately and security and securely. And that that's, you know, that's really concerning. What's that, what's that mean about what we thought we knew about our, our leaders, our, our governments, and, you know, if it can happen there in Canada, it can happen anywhere. So I think this is a real, real eye-opening moment, right? Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, and yeah. It, it's also been dispiriting to see that, you know, Kraken and Coinbase basically don't have any option here. You know, when, when the Ontario regulators and the police come knocking, um, they've both said that they, they are reluctantly complying with it. Um, so, it, yeah, it's just um, the rhetoric is, is more than rhetoric now. It seems like things are ramping up both in Canada and in the United States with um, regulators really trying to um, put their stamp on, on this market, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one thing to do business in a jurisdiction where, of course, you, you know, typically have to comply with the, the local laws and regulations um, as, you know, Coinbase or, or Kraken will do in Ontario as they should do, right? But uh, it's another thing to just advocate for using an open and freely available technology based on mathematics and then to be accused of that being subversive um, is, is the eye-opening moment, right? So I think, you know, tying this back to um, kind of the whole Web3 movement and, and some of why we're building these technologies um, in the first place and why we work on, on live peer, which is a, you know, an open video infrastructure um, for the world, right? It's the notion that you can enable these technology primitives that are open access that let developers build what they want, um, be in control of their own economic outcomes and not be subject to the whims of you know, building on a, a single centralized big tech platform that has their own um, you know, objectives and monetization. And yeah, like you know, in, in your case, cases, even like there's centralized service there, like Amazon Web Services or, you know, the Apple App Store that they can get in the way. And then I guess with the Ontario example, it's a centralized government service, you know, that can come in and basically say, we're going to freeze your accounts because we don't like what you're doing. Um, and it, so much harder to get around the, uh, the centralized government uh, aspect, I think, right now. But I think what you guys are doing to get around the kind of gatekeeping centralized forces and some of like video sharing um, is, is great. Thanks, thanks. And yeah, I think, you know, video is such an important part of the, the world economy. It's how we communicate with one another. We're on video right now, right? It's how we learn, it's how we get educated. It's how we actually, many people participate and monetize their time over, over video, right? So. Um, I think people should have the freedom to do that. Um, what we're we're building enables people to build those video experiences that that create those opportunities in a cost-effective and scalable and reliable way. Um, I think you know it, it's not fully about censorship resistance. In fact, I think when it comes to live video and and uh, just enabling anything to be broadcast in a completely censorship-resistant way actually leads to some more. You know, harm than than good that it might cause in many cases. So it's important we build these tools responsibly, so those operating on these networks have you know choice about what they're contributing to or what they what they distribute. But um, at the same time, kind of base technology choice needs to be open, needs to exist, needs to be accessible for for all. And I think open source software plus open infrastructure networks are a really powerful combination. There, I'm happy to you know talk more about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, totally agree with you. Um... Let's go back a little bit, but about, about you, like where, um, where did you grow up and what, what were you like as a kid? Were you always into computers? Was this, is this something, are you surprised that you are where you are now? Yeah, I'm, uh, I grew up in uh, New Jersey, outside New York City um, in America, right? I, um, you know, typical kid in the suburb, played sports, liked school, um, and, you know, got into computers at a pretty early age. I was always kind of building 
websites and learning to program and was super fortunate that, you know, my school district happened to have an early computer science program. So I got exposed to that, that early. I think, you know, like many kids, I made video game websites and wanted to make games and that's kind of what drew me, drew me into it. Um, so it's, it's not a surprise that I kind of followed that builder mentality into, uh, you know, a computer science degree and, and ultimately kind of software focused entrepreneurship and, and always building. Um, so, you know, I've worked on many startups over the year and like you said, over the years, and like you said, fought some battles against kind of building against and being subject to the whims of the big, big tech gatekeepers. Um, and, you know, I was so happy to kind of discover blockchain technology as a development platform back in 2016. Yeah. Um, help us out. Like where, what were you built? Like, what were you building around in, in the video game world? What era were, were you in there? Like, I guess in like high school, kind of what kind of games and stuff were you into? Yeah, um, what I was actually doing is I would create um, kind of online communities and fan type sites for some of the, you know, popular games. I like some sports games, you know, NHL 2001 or yeah. the baseball game or um, even I think I had the domain like SimCity4000.com <laughs> as if like that was going to be the next hit in the franchise or something. But what was really powerful was that I saw kind of in the early days of the internet, how powerful it was to like organize a community around these things that would enhance everyone's experience. So take a sports game where, you know, the, the default experience is you just play against the computer till the, till the end of time and that's it. But when you create a community, all of a sudden you have the ability to like play people around the world, to form a league, to actually people, artists would contribute, you know, expansion packs and upgrades to the uniforms. Um, and it was actually like, you know, being part of the forums and the community that created this whole new element of excitement around, around these games. And the game publishers were nice enough not to um, shut, shut me down and, you know, considered me a good, good partner actor in the ecosystem. <laughs> but it was a good, good uh, foray into entrepreneurship after school and you're uh, learning to program and build a website. And uh, were your parents supportive of this? Were they like in science or computer science or anything like that? They were, they were super supportive. They, they were not. Um, you know, they were not in computer science, um, but they, you know, were entrepreneurial. And I got to see my mom, you know, build a, build a business in our, our, you know, library in our house. And that was, uh, you know, really inspirational to me. So, you know, super supportive parents in all my endeavors for better or for worse. Um, and I think that probably gave me the, um, that kind of entrepreneurial confidence or naivety where you say, Oh, this thing sounds really hard, but like, yeah, I can go for it. Like we can go for it and try and, and build it. And, you know, you haven't been beaten, beaten down by the world in terms of people telling you, you can't. Yeah, man, believe me, <laughs> I'm in the startup mode right now. And I, I hear you a hundred percent. I yep, wish I had yep. known what I was getting. There, into. There's not a lot. There's only like the victories are few and far between. Right. So you have to be excited to, to do the building and go for through the sure. journey. For sure. <laughs> um, yep. And uh, yeah. So and then um, did that like community building on the internet, like bleed you more into compute, like this computer science is kind of what I, you know, you knew what you wanted to do. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do computer science. Um, college computer science is totally different than building websites in high school. It becomes research oriented and theoretical. And I actually think that that led me to like a little bit of a, a delay on my entrepreneurial journey a little bit for, for better or for worse, right? Like you actually, I was in college at the time that Zuckerberg built and launched Facebook, right? It was the same year as me in, in school. And so, you know, we're 
he was hacking around with PHP, building web apps, creating social networks. I was like, oh, I'm doing this, this major, this heads down kind of research oriented, learn the fundamentals, um, but you're not like building a creative output, yeah. right? And I kind of, that led me into kind of a traditional job straight out of school where I learned a lot about building and architecting big systems, but it wasn't long before, um, you know, that entrepreneurial itch kicked back in and I realized I was actually happiest when I was like working on my own website and community back in, yeah. back in high school, right? What's it mean to do this? to do a startup before, you know, the internet was flooded with resources and there were huge startup communities in all sorts of cities. But uh, my entry point to that was I was really fortunate to um, join a Y Combinator startup right as they were admitted into Y Combinator. And I got to tag along, um, the, you know, the, the YC founders were really generous and kind of letting me tag along and kind of got the, the startup in a box exposure that Y Combinator gave you back in 2008. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I know the feeling of putting something on hold, you know, for like a stable job. Um, it, it, it's powerful, especially if your parents are kind of pushing for one, one thing or the other. Um, I was actually headed to medical school uh, before I said, nah, screw that. I, I've always, I always wanted to be a writer. And so yeah, that kind of, you know, waylaid me a little bit. And I've always wondered what it would be like if I'd just gone through college knowing that I was going to be a writer. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, so tell us a little bit now um, about where you're getting to, where you're in the startup world and um, you're, you're creating things. And this is around, I think, 2012-ish, are we? Is that when, when you start like one of your first startups? Um, yeah, the, um, the first startup um, that I, I founded with uh, Jordan Cooper and then Eric Tang, who's still my partner to this day on LivePeer, um, was called Hyperpublic. It was around 2010. We were in New York City, uh, just as the New York kind of seed ecosystem was beginning to, to flourish and, and boom. Um, and we built a, a data platform. We built a local data platform, um, kind of organizing the world's local information. So where are businesses? What types of restaurants exist at what points? What's on their menu? What are they selling? Organizing. You were going like knocking door to door, right? On businesses and saying, hey, I want to put you on my website. We were building technology that collected all that information for us. <laughs> so we recognized through scalable technology, we could build and organize the world's local information rather than having to call, you know, door to, or go door to door, right? And so um, this was at a time when local apps were just beginning to exist. GPS devices were just put in cell phones. And so um, apps like Yelp and Foursquare and Uber and these sorts of things that kind of picked up your GPS and showed you what's around you. Um, we're just beginning to come on and our platform was the sort of thing that could could power that. So it was you know a good idea. It was very useful at the right time. And you know we had a good good outcome there. we got acquired by one of our our customers, Groupon, um, who was kind of a fast growing startup at the the time and became their their local data team. So we got to see the good positive arc of of entrepreneurship and kind of making data open and available to developers that wanted to to build on us, build on it. And that was twenty twelve when that ended. And then in 2013, we started this long, hard journey that, that we learned some hard lessons about relying on, on the big tech platforms as well. And that was with Wildcard, right? Correct. So, um, you know, the, the short version of this story is that, you know, around this era, we saw everything's going to shift to mobile. Everything from desktop web is going to shift onto mobile. But on mobile, um, all this content, these videos, these articles, these products that people are browsing and buying, 
it's not going to be consumed in the web browser. It's going to be consumed inside of Twitter and Facebook and Google search results and Pinterest and, and these popular social apps, right? And those apps recognized it and they created open APIs where they said, oh, you can structure your articles and videos and products to, to display really nicely yeah. in here, right? Free content, uh, right? Yeah, Facebook instant articles and yeah. Google accelerated mobile pages and Pinterest rich pins and, and embedded tweak Twitter cards and stuff. And so we built this whole platform that could help websites, you know, push that content in there. And then over time, those big tech companies started to like close their APIs or not release the features they communicated they would or not let you customize your content. And it turns out they went directly to um, the publishers themselves and kind of didn't let us, you know, uh, be in be in the middle and provide tools and services. And um, you know, everything that we we thought would happen happened, but the, the big tech platforms kind of, you know, allowed developers to seed their ecosystems, but then changed the rules of the game and, uh, you know, took the bigger piece of the pie for themselves. And of course they would, they would like, look at how they've behaved in the past and how they're behaving now and what their incentives are. It's an opportunity for them to maximize their, their profits, but it's a lesson that we learned the, the hard way, which is don't put your, your business, you know, your future in the hands of uh, you know what you think is a kind of benefactory on the, the big tech ecosystem. Yeah, um, yeah. that's where the centralization risk lies. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, they have total centralized gatekeeping control of how you exist in their ecosystem. Similarly, when we said, when we saw, oh, we can't actually exist in their ecosystems, we need our own application. We you know, built and released a great one, tens of thousands of users, one of Apple's apps of the year. And then all of a sudden we faced Apple holding our app out of the app store for, you know, our updates out of the app store for months on end without explanation, um, you know, because we were, I don't even know why they never even communicated the right reason, something to do with commerce. And it was like, oh yeah, they're actually like another gatekeeper that controls our future. And it's just like, screw this, never again, never again do we want to be you know, relying on the benevolence of these big tech platforms. We want to build on open source software, open systems, open networks. And, and lo and behold, 2016, yeah, Ethereum had just launched and this thing called the DAO was gaining attention. Um, and that was a real eye-opening moment for us. Yeah, I mean, what entrepreneur wants to say, mother, may I, you know, to someone else to allow them to conduct their business. But yet here we are with that enormous power in, in all these big tech companies. And I, I, you know, I've written about it in many different forms, but it, it definitely is um, very much a guiding principle of, of the Web3 sort of Ethereum folks to cre just create an alternative for that system. You know, I don't think anybody's thinking that they're going to replace Wall Street or replace, you know, internet commerce, but it, it does give people an alternative. Um, and so, yeah, tell me about now you're you're into Ethereum and you you start diving in and not only is it mostly decentralized peer to peer but there's also a native economic element to it as well, right? And that sort of blew your mind. That that's that's absolutely right. I mean, there's the the two contributing factors. One, open development platform, great. That's table stakes. That's what we wanted, but the the light bulb moment was now you can embed economic incentives into open source software in a way that actually gets people to contribute to that software, to run that software globally, to form networks. And most powerfully, 
like they all, you know, participate in the upside as those networks get used because they become owners in these, these networks as well. Like that was so cool, such a game changing new idea that was never before possible. And it actually is, you know, there's a developer that kind of used and appreciated open source, but never really understood, you know, who's maintaining this? Why are people contributing to it? Why do these communities form? What's the incentive there? Now, all of a sudden, you could see a very direct line to like, wow, like open source software actually can be the best software in the world because you can have a community of thousands of people that actually benefit from its growing adoption while still allowing it to, to be open source. And of course you have to get all the incentives right and these networks and the, there has to be true utility there. Well, yeah, uh, let's dig into that a little bit. So yeah. So why don't you explain what LivePeer is and, and how it you know, uses a decentralized network to achieve its goals. And then maybe you could talk about your token and how that you know, is so in, integral to the incentivization of, of your users. Sure, we're gonna we're gonna go on a little video journey or detour because live here is a video infrastructure. So what's what's that mean? It means that people building video apps that things that look like Twitch or YouTube or TikTok um, need software and infrastructure to power that video streaming. You have to do compute on video to encode it into different formats. You have to distribute it around the world to people in real time. So and and deliver it in, in high quality and that places a tremendous load on, on internet infrastructure. It videos 80% of the bandwidth on the, on the internet, yeah, right? And so 80%. <laughs> yep. And you know, because it's challenging to do video at scale and you need all these servers standing by around the world at any given moment, you know, a lot of times the only option are the big, are the big cloud providers. You use AWS, you use Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure as your, your video infrastructure if you're doing video at scale. Um, those are very expensive. It's very expensive for them to operate and have tons of servers standing by just ready to receive live video in case someone starts a, starts a stream. And so the live peer network is an open alternative. It's, it's anyone with idle computing capacity around the world can run live peer node software, can form this infrastructure network for video streaming, um, and they can you know, earn the money that developers pay in order to use a video infrastructure. Um, but you know, if you, you follow me for a minute here, I can tell you like who, who's providing the supply, why can it be cost effective? Um, I, I think it's really interesting and it applies not just to video, but other Web3 services as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to jump in, um, <clears throat> so to change the raw video that people are uploading into something that can go out to any device on different networks at the same quality, it's called transcoding, right? That's right. And That's right. like a service like AWS, well, I think we'll charge you said $3 um, an hour. Yep, yeah, if you're using a hosted cloud service, Amazon has a couple of products, um, Vimeo has a product, Mux.com has a product, Brightcode, right? You're typically looking at, you know, for a live stream, like $3 an hour per stream or up, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're building something that looks like Twitch and you're lucky enough to have a thousand people that are using it at once, um, to stream, to create content, you know, that's $3,000 an hour. That's, uh, what's that? 70, 72,000 bucks a day or millions of dollars a month just for infrastructure. Right. Yeah. And that, that's a hell of a bill that the, that startup has to foot. So now live peer comes through and using a distributed network with, you know, where there's excess capacity, like maybe it's cryptocurrency miners or just anybody who sets up a node you're now able to do that transcoding for something like 30 cents an hour, right? 
Yeah, so um, we, we run a kind of gateway service and kind of have a list price to use it at 30 cents an hour. We're running a bunch of kind of global ingest nodes and handling all the scaling. So that's kind of the price that we charge for that entry point. So you see kind of a, a you know, 10X disruption versus a traditional cloud service. The supply side of the network, you know, Live Peer Network is an open marketplace. Anyone with these servers can charge whatever they want to encode the video. And you mentioned cryptocurrency miners being a good source of these, this supply. Um, it's really interesting. People mining Ethereum or other GPU coins um, have you know thousands of these GPUs. There's millions deployed around the world that are mining cryptocurrency. Those GPUs happen to have video encoding chips on them that sit there doing nothing. They can't hash crypto, so they're just sitting there idle. So Lipeer enables them to encode video on Livepeer without disrupting their crypto mining. Wow. And so we tap into this, this global supply. And so when you look at the economics for them, you know, encoding video, you know, an hour of video using that chip on their GPU, the bandwidth plus electricity is like a couple cents, uh, probably less than two cents. Um, and so for them, it's like, okay, their cost is two cents. Cloud providers are charging $3. What do they want to charge on this network to make a little bit of extra money with no opportunity cost? Um, and that's yeah, why that's really interesting. Yeah, so disruptive. That, yeah, that's really interesting that all these miners are using graphics processing units, right? But I didn't know yep. that that uh, they had idle video encoding like uh, cap capacity as well. That's really cool. Yep, yep, because that's what you know a lot of the GPUs were made for being able to process video, but also do this yeah. general purpose compute on the CUDA cores and. Um, so that's that's great. It's this huge abundant supply that's out there, and that's why you know the Lightpeer Network has tens of thousands of these GPUs available that are just looking for whatever additional revenue they can they can get, right? Yeah. And what's the um, what's your growth been like? You know, maybe like from a year ago to now, how are you seeing things on the network? Yeah. The the metric that we've been looking at has been how many minutes of video were transcoded per week. Um, and a year ago, we were probably around two to three hundred thousand minutes of video um, per week um, over the course of the year that grew and we hit the million minute milestone, you know, eight months ago and the, the two million mile, minute milestone a couple months ago. And, you know, now we're doing between two and a half and three million uh, minutes of, of two and a half and three million minutes of video um, encoded per week. Yeah. Um, so that's been um, good. It's good to see that growth, right? I think it's um, a lot of that comes from kind of traditional uh, kind of user-generated content creator economy applications that are letting tens or hundreds of users um, stream at once and need a, a cost-effective infrastructure to do this. Um, I'm excited about an area that doesn't represent a ton of minutes yet, but I think is going to unlock huge potential, which is Web3 enabled video apps, things that have Web3 kind of decentralized primitives baked in, things like NFT minting and token-gated access to streaming and you know crypto native monetization mechanisms um, I think you know we haven't seen those lead to millions of minutes of usage yet but I think the next TikTok scale app is likely to to leverage those primitives and, and hopefully be built on live here yeah cool and then let's jump in here and um, explain how your token works and why that's an incentive for people and, and just like how ethereum you know basically it's a token built on the ethereum blockchain and just kind of like how that all fits together. Sure. Um, so Livepeer launched almost four years ago on Ethereum's mainnet. Um, so we were one of the kind of the first um, 
kind of utility-based protocols to go live. Um, it, you know, I described the live peer token as a work token, which means that it's actually, it's not used to pay for services on the network. Um, you pay for services in, in ETH. Um, it's used for those that want to do work on the network. These node operators, they hold the token. And for every token that they stake on the network, it kind of entitles them the opportunity to compete for an additional unit of work. So the analogy is if you staked 1% of the tokens on the network, you know, on your node, you would earn about 1% of, you'd be able to do about 1% of the work and earn 1% of the fees. Um, and so if you believe, you know, the total fees will grow because there's more usage, then your, you know, your 1% of token would, would give you access to earn a growing amount of fees, Okay. right? Yeah. And so, yep. So what's it do? It provides a security deposit. Um, and then the issuance of these tokens actually create a great incentive for bootstrapping the network. So when you stake and, and you know, are, are standing by to do work on this network, yes, you're earning the fees people pay, but you're also earning um, kind of inflationary newly minted live peer token each day as part of an ongoing kind of distribution of the, the ownership and ability to do work on this network. And that's been really powerful because that means that you know, thousands of people show up to do and perform, be ready to perform this work even before there's, you know, significant demand. And it ensures there's always more supply available than demand. And that's how you kind of solve the chicken and the egg and bootstrap the network. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, there has been such a lack of regulatory clarity. Are you worried that your token could ever be considered a security? Like, in the US, there hasn't been, you know, the crystal clear guidance that every project would want to see so that they know how to build a token coordinated network within the um, kind of the, the realms of guidance, right? What I can say is being US-based, being responsible entrepreneurs, we've um, taken so many steps to be um, really conservative from a, a risk perspective from the beginning as it comes to that. We've never done a, a public, you know, ICO or crowd sale. The token was generated through this Merkle mining mechanism and distributed to those who are doing work on the network. Um, our network was functional and worked from, from day one because we had been running test nets with real video software for you know, a year before launching. Um, you know, we weren't even listed on exchanges until this, this network was fully utilized and, and decentralized. Um, and so, um, and our team really didn't play a core, core role in that. So you know, there's always like risk and lack of, lack of clarity, but we've tried to you know, build responsibly and show the power of these networks providing real utility um, without being a speculative, you know, for, for a frenzy prior to digital. Yeah, that, that's great. What a good model you're providing. I wish more of the community would do it like that. Um, I think that it would have a better reputation, crypto in general, if, uh, if, if there are more folks like you. Um, Thanks. There's a, there's a lot of good projects out there, though, that have tried to... Oh, yeah. yeah. Build responsibly, provide. Yeah, the, the I, I totally agree, uh, but they don't get the headlines, which is kind of a shame. You know, it's always the frauds and the the folks who do it cheap and quick um, that seem to grab a lot of the attention. So, um, the reason we spoke previously was that uh, well, it was just to talk about live peer, but also uh, it was right when um, Moxie Marlin Spike kind of came out with his critique of Web three. Um, Moxie is the, the founder of Signal, the encrypted um, messaging app. And so he had, he had dove into uh, some Web3 stuff like minting NFTs and, and trying to create decentralized apps and kind of came back with a, a pretty thorough critique of it. 
because he he thought there are these still these centralized sort of bottlenecks, um, you know, like OpenSea uh, in the NFT world, or um, the fact that you know most people aren't running a node um, to connect to the blockchain, so they're relying on other services that can be sort of centralized to relay their information back and forth from the blockchain to to adapt. For example, um, you guys are just kind of like you know, going the decentralized route, the peer-to-peer -peer route natively. Um, what do you think, like, how do you tell people what, what to think about the way that they should be going about this? And, and are, are there ways that you see um, folks sort of trying to go halfway and, and that's not good enough? Or what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, loved Moxie's critique because I think it was, um, you know, I think it was fair and I think it highlighted um, a lot of the challenges that we should confront head on as an industry. And then I also loved the industry's response to the critique, which was not just that, hey, this is something that needs to be shouted down and diminished, but it was actually like, hey, he makes really good points, but they're also looking at the way the world is today and not where we're all working to go. And by the way, here's the steps we're taking to get there. And by the way, because this critique shone light on it, all of a sudden people were like catalyzed into action to accelerate the steps of where we're going. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Like that's like this industry is so energetic and on it and, and timely and such a fun part to be a part of because you can see like immediate progress as a result of, you know, one essay being published by one, one person. Um, yeah, the, where do we want to go? We want Web3 to be a platform for fully decentralized applications where users kind of have control and sovereignty over their data, their information, their finances, et cetera. And there's no lock-in and um, all, all these benefits, right? Getting there is really freaking challenging. It's a really hard, long build. And you can, you know, you can create infrastructure networks, but then if you want to onboard people to them, you still benefit a lot from, you know, products that ease the challenges of interacting with these networks. And those products can be built and run by by companies that are that are centralized and that's you know an intermediate step and i don't like i don't have a problem with that in fact we at livepeer have our own hosted gateway that a company runs in order to make it easy to access and leverage this network um but the key, the key thing is that we're all motivated and aligned around like the long-term vision that the network would be accessed in a fully decentralized way and this is just one of many companies i don't think it's companies should go away entirely. I think it's that there can be whole ecosystems of actors that are built on and leverage these, these primitives like open finance, open infrastructures, um, you know, shared ownership, these, these sorts of things. Um, and yeah, these, these intermediate steps and building blocks that help us get there, I think are, are part of the journey. Yeah, for sure. Um, nothing that I know of begins life in a decentralized fashion, you know, it's gotta be, there has to be a process to get there. But, um, and what's fascinating is just, like you said, the incentives a lot of times are aligned here um, with, you know, the economics, but also there's the ethos of it as well, that a lot of people um, came to this industry because they, they wanted to get away from gatekeepers and had experiences like you had um, with Wildcard. Um, and then to kind of circle back, you know, I guess in a really much more decentralized world, the Canadian authorities might have a much harder time trying to crack down on protests or on people, you know, 
trying to fund those protests. And if, if everything's, you know, hosted on a thousand hard drives around the world, how do you take that network down? You know, you don't. And, and so I guess, like you said, it's hard, but it, it does seem to have real world implications and, and, and people are, you know, seeing what the dangers are here. Uh, if, and, and, and that, that, that this presents the opportunity to get around those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, this example just showcases how important it is that these, um, you know, decentralized systems and, and primitives exist because without them, what happens? You know, all communication is shut off, all freedom to transact is shut off. Like we, we need these, these systems now more than ever. And it's okay that there's some, you know, companies that are that are accelerating access to it, right? Like I'd rather have uh, 10 million people have Bitcoin because Coinbase exists than saying, oh, you can only get Bitcoin by mining it yourself and having only 10,000 people have Bitcoin, right? I think that's a, a better acceleration of the process towards an open financial system. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to stop it, uh, to end. Um, Doug, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, great, great uh, speaking with you as well. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks and good luck with live peer. Thank you. Talk okay. soon. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.